Well, trusting you are there, uh, Luke 11, verses 1 through 13, let us hear the word of the living God. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend? And shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he said, And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. And I say unto you, Though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity or persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that uh, asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Amen. May the Lord bless his word to us. Let us go before him in prayer once again. Our Father and our God, we come to the preached word, and we are mightily dependent upon the Lord our God. We pray that the preacher would be filled with the Holy Ghost, that his weaknesses would be overshadowed, uh, especially any weaknesses of mind or body, even weaknesses of the heart, uh, if he is not adoring the Lord as he ought as he brings the word. We pray that this minister would decrease such that Jesus Christ and his will for the congregation would increase. Lord, we have asked, we have seen the need to ask for the Holy Spirit, and we ask for the Holy Spirit trusting that his ministry to us will be profound and powerful. For the Lord has promised to us in this very text that if we ask for him, we shall receive. We ask, O Lord, give. Give the Spirit that he would fill the preaching of the word and he'll fill our hearts to receive it with faith, love, and meekness, that these would be seen to us as the very words of God. To that end, Father, we pray that you would, you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a great barometer of our faith is our prayer life. A great barometer of our faith is our prayer life. What is done in secret especially, what is done in the prayer closet, really is what truly defines us. You know, you and I can come here and we can have this great show of being so pious and so uh, fixated upon the Lord, perhaps. 
But really the measure of who we are is seen when there is nobody but us and God. And if we will be found in prayer before him. And for those of us here in a church like this who love theology, uh, I believe it is true that what we actually believe about God is found in prayer. Our practice of prayer. I say demonstrates, it demonstrates what we believe about God because we might say we think much of him or that we know much of him, but the demonstration of our faith and our knowledge of God is our prayer life. It's often said, a man is no greater than his prayer life. And that is absolutely true. And Jesus Christ in this text exposes much of our unbelief. He exposes truly no matter how high we say our thought is of God, that when it comes to prayer, it is often that we have very low thoughts of God. Very low. He brings to us, in fact, examples of evil fathers and mere friends and says that we are more inclined to believe that men like this will hear us and graciously answer us than God will. He exposes our unbelief that we are more likely to believe that our friend at midnight in the middle of the night who is tucked in bed with his children will answer us than God. And he says that we believe that our evil fathers will give us good things more than we believe God will. There is an indictment here of our unbelief. And he also teaches us that by faith in himself, we are to be persistent And we are to be patient in prayer. To believe this, and this is a truth of God's word, that when we go to prayer, we never leave empty-handed. Never. In that, he says, and he's really inducing you, isn't he? Saying, God wants you to come to prayer. And God wants you to come to him in prayer. He promises even this wondrous and great reward that in prayer, he will give himself to you. No matter what you ask for, in prayer, he will give himself. He says, he will give the Holy Spirit. He will give himself to you in prayer. And how then can we ever say we leave prayer empty-handed if we know we have the Holy Spirit? And I would ask, in view of all of these promises and pledges from the Lord, how many of us go to him in prayer constantly? How many of us go to him persistently? How many of us go to him with these promises upon our heart? We are to resolve from this day forward to do so. To be constant with the Lord in prayer, knowing how he brings us to himself. Now those thoughts are really just to introduce our theme. And I'll just sum it up this way. Persistence in prayer will receive the promise. Persistence in prayer will receive the promise All the promises of God are received through persistence in prayer. And that's the teaching of the Lord in this text. And we will discover that under three headings. First is the pattern for prayer. Second is the persistence of prayer. And third is the promise of prayer. Our first heading then is the pattern of prayer. Now, as we take up this narrative at this time, Our Lord was in prayer himself in verse one. uh, It came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place. Now in the gospels, you've seen this in our time in Luke, the Lord was often in prayer. 
Luke takes great note to note that our Lord Jesus Christ himself was a man of prayer. Now, typically, we don't get much more than a peek into his prayers. Um, Instance, we recently learned how uh, the Lord was praying that Peter's faith would not fail, right? We, We got a glimpse, a little view into his prayer. Or we remember that he prayed in Gethsemane, not my will, but thine be done. We have these little glimpses into the Lord's prayer life. Of course, we have that one wondrous chapter, John 17, the high priestly prayer. And we remember recently we had a couple of sermons on it. What can we say when we survey that prayer? That if, for instance, on one hand, no man ever spake as this man spake, we can certainly say no man ever prayed as this man prayed. Jesus Christ is the man to go to if you want to learn how to pray. He is the one to teach us. And so, of course, we find that he excels all others in prayer, whether it's Jacob, which we remember in Genesis 32, wrestling with God, or Elijah, who has a man of like passions as we are, or John the Baptist, Jesus excels them all in prayer. Now, then, here's a disciple. And what an opportunity then this disciple has when he sees the Lord in prayer and he comes to him, he waits patiently. When the Lord is done in prayer, he says, Lord, teach us to pray. Even as John taught his disciples to pray. And there's a couple of things to note in the request itself before we go on from there. Uh, First, you and I need to note this, like this disciple was wise. We ought to be wise that you and I need instruction in prayer. You are not naturally in this fallen flesh going to know how to pray. Not only does your flesh not want to pray, it also does not know how to pray. And so you must go to the word of God to understand how to pray. You need instructing in that. You need to be humble in that. I must be too. And we are to go to the master in order to learn. The second thing, and this really ties part and parcel into the theme of our text, which is this. How approachable God is in Christ. The disciple comes, he asks his Lord, teach me how to pray. In fact, you can see the disciple's request as a kind of prayer. He's going to God in the flesh saying, teach me how to pray. What was the mediator's response? Does he denigrate? Does he chastise his disciple? Does he say something like, what do you mean you don't know how to pray? Or does he say, no, I am too busy to hear you. I am too busy to instruct you. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You go humbly to the Lord Jesus Christ and he will always receive you. And he will answer you. He will teach you. In fact, one of the best ways to learn how to pray is first to pray. Lord, teach me how to pray and then take up the word of God. That said, in verses two to four, Christ gives you a version of the Lord's Prayer. Now, you are more likely familiar with it from Matthew, the sixth chapter. And the version here in Luke 11 is substantially the same, though there are some minor differences in the wording. Perhaps most notable is the lack of the doxology, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You don't find that here. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but what do we make of some of these things? Well, this is a different occasion for sure. This is not the Sermon on the Mount. But the overall pattern is exactly the same as in Matthew chapter 6. He's giving the same pattern. And in fact, the slight differences show you that this is a pattern for prayer 
And it's not a rigid and ritualistic prayer that the Lord is giving us. In Matthew 6, the Lord was quite clear, didn't he? Say, after this manner, therefore pray ye. So the Lord's Prayer is not some strictly prescribed ritual that we are prescribed to pray in this particular fixed way. All that said, you can pray. Just pray with understanding of what it means. Pray from the heart and don't just regurgitate and recite it. Pray with faith and pray it with understanding. Now, I preached on the Lord's Prayer for Matthew 6 a couple of years ago, I believe. So I'm not going to exposit it in its entirety, but let me give you a synopsis of it. It has a preface, as you find it, Our Father which art in heaven. We'll consider that in a bit. But it has six petitions. The first three, and this is helpful for you, as you consider even the division of the law, the Ten Commandments, right? It's divided into uh, duties towards the Lord and then duties towards man, right? That's how we see it, love to God, love to neighbor. In the same way, the Lord's Prayer has its six petitions divided in half. The first three petitions, children, deal with the glory of God. They deal with God's glory. Think of it this way. What is petition one? Hallowed be thy name. Deals with the glory of God. Petition number two, thy kingdom come. We're thinking about the Lord's kingdom. Petition number three, thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. These all deal with the majesty and the glory of God. The second portion, the last three petitions, deal with our daily needs. Petition number four, give us day by day our daily bread. Petition five, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Petition six, lastly, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So this is the division. This also shows you the priority, doesn't it? Where the priority is in prayer. Like everything in the Christian life, the glory of God comes first, and then our needs come second. Yet we are prone to flip it around. If you look at most Christians' prayer lives, it's all about I need, I need, I need, I need. And it's like they don't even have a care for God and the glory of God. These six petitions then are very comprehensive. And each petition has categories by which we can hang all of our petitions and prayers. One of the most blessed things about knowing the meaning of the Lord's Prayer is the confidence it gives you in prayer. Right? We remember what the word of God says, that we are to have confidence in prayer, but we can only have confidence if we pray according to the will of God. Now, the Lord in every possible way then is giving you every advantage you need in prayer. Not only is heart's disposition towards you in Christ, but he's also saying here, take these, take these petitions so that you may know what things I smile upon and will bless you with. 1 John 5, 14 through 15 shows you the power of that. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. You see, part of the weakness we have in prayer is we don't know what to pray for. And so the Lord supplies for our weakness, the Lord's prayer, that we would know how to pray in such a way that when we come before the throne of heaven, we have great boldness and confidence because the Lord himself taught us to pray this way. So the Lord in his grace and kindness has given you this instruction. May the Lord be blessed for his goodness to us. So 
These six petitions ought to be a regular part of your prayer life. I've mentioned this before. The first three petitions, you pray for the glory of God to be manifest. So brethren, let's, let's think on that for a moment. When we look at the state of our souls, when we look at the state of our churches, when we look at the state of our nation, perhaps you might realize that things are so terribly dire because we do not pray for the glory of God to be manifest, as we should. We do not ask or we ask amiss because we want to spend on our lusts and not on the glory of God, so we don't receive what we really need. We don't pray that his name would be hallowed. What does that mean? Set apart, blessed by all men, even ourselves. We don't pray that his kingdom should advance, both in our midst and in the world. We do not pray that his will would be done in earth as it is in heaven, that men would follow after Christ and follow after righteousness. And yet we deplore the state of things, don't we? But we're not found praying for such things. What is it that you yourself ask God for in prayer? What are you asking for? These are the matters that ought to consume first place in your prayer life and mine too. This is where the priority ought to be in prayer. Does it? Let us be honest before God now in worship. Is this where the priority is in our prayer life? It must be. This is a basic idea in the word of God. God's majesty is to ever be before us in prayer first and foremost. Let us resolve then by the grace of God to ever set the Lord before us in prayer, saying my chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So my prayers ought to be in accord with my chief end. Well, then Christ gives you three petitions for your daily needs. Daily. And that's a key. Look at the fourth petition that says day by day. Give us day by day. That really is the constraining principle of the last three petitions, showing us that we have daily need of these things from the Lord, that we are dependent on the Lord every day for such things. We're dependent on God daily, brethren, but here's the thing, because we don't pray in dependence, we forget it. And we believe that we are self-made men and women, aren't we? That really, even the, the food on my table, I believe that it was my arm that brought it there. Instead of remembering that day by day, I am dependent on God. And we think that God is obligated, absolutely obligated to us to give such things to us. Or that it is a given that we will have our food every day. And that's what happens when we don't pray in this manner. You know, and you have to ask this. This is the perverseness of the human heart. Here we are in America, right? Why is it that perhaps the most blessed, certainly the most rich of all people in the history of the world are often the least dependent on God? Where did all this come from? Come from us? Because we have the right form of government, which is disputable anyhow. Is that why we have these things? Or is it because God has bountifully given us these things? And yet we are often the least dependent people upon God. While there are brethren in other places who fervently pray to the Lord, give me 
a scrap of food this day. But there are other day-by-day needs. The need for forgiveness, a daily need. There's a daily need to forgive and there's a daily need to receive forgiveness. You sin daily, I sin daily. And so we ought to be asking God for forgiveness. We ought to be searching our hearts daily and expressing to God in the ways that we have sinned against him. Day by day, we have need of forgiveness. And uh, maybe you've forgotten the fact that you sin daily. Well, if you prayed this petition, you would not be so forgetful. It would cause you to say, yes, how have I sinned against God this day? And I would ask God for forgiveness. Particular sins are to be repented of particularly. And this petition helps you in that. It's a humbling petition that puts us in our place. But what else does it remind us of? Not only of the wickedness of our sin, but also the graciousness of God. That he is gracious to answer when we ask him for forgiveness. And we don't often pray to be forgiven and we forget the grace of God. Then also, in this final petition, we day by day are tempted to sin. We forget that we need to pray in this way and we fall into sin. We are to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil day by day. Daily, we need deliverance from evil, don't we? Uh, Sufficient for the day is the evil therein, isn't there? That means there's evil in the day. There's temptations that come across. There's always the flesh, the world, and the devil assaulting us. Are we praying as spiritual men and women this way daily? And if we're not, are we surprised at the end of the day that we have been sort of spiritually put through the wood chipper? We ought not be surprised if we are not praying in this way, brethren. Now, I'd also remind you that these last three petitions encapsulate the things that are needful and necessary for us. They are neither optional, nor are they things that would be nice to have. They are necessary and needful. These are the things that you and I have need of day by day. And maybe remembering that would be helpful to your walk with the Lord. These are the things I need. These are the things I need. Other things are not so needed. And yet our focus is on the things that we don't need usually, covetousness and so on rather than the things that we are to be pressed to our knees to pray for. So it's even a good barometer of our spirituality. What is it that we really want? And I hope that the first three petitions in particular are the things that we would say, this, oh God, is the desire of my heart. That God would be glorified is the desire of my heart. Well, for further edification on the Lord's Prayer and its six, petition, I will, uh, six petitions, I will direct you to the larger catechism, questions 190 to 196, wondrous exposition of it, teaching you how to pray as it goes through the scriptures and shows how you can hang everything that you need to pray for in these six petitions. Okay, so what I would say then as we've heard these things is gauge your own prayer life against the Lord's Prayer. Not as a pattern merely to pray, but in terms of its heart, what the Lord would want you to know from it, especially for the glory of God to be manifest, that the Son of God would be glorified, that his kingdom would grow and cover the earth and smash the gates of hell, that he would be enthroned as king over all of our hearts, that his will would be done in your life, in your church, and in your nation. See how spiritual a prayer this is and compare your prayers 
There's one, just one petition for physical sustenance. Now, he doesn't neglect that, does he? He knows that you are body and soul, and he knows you need the sustenance of your body. But what does he show you is the greater need? These spiritual matters. How unlike our prayers then, the Lord's prayer is. Our prayers are often very, very imbalanced. And we need to get them in line with what the Lord shows us. Be more spiritual, brethren, in your prayer life. Be spiritual men and women before the Lord and not carnal men and women. Maybe I've even gone too fast, too far. First, have a prayer life. I suppose we have to begin there, don't we? But then have a spiritual prayer life. The great weakness in Christians today is undoubtedly that we do not pray as we ought to. But when Christians do, and this is the testimony of church history, you can go and see this as the testimony in the book of Acts, our souls are revived and the church is revived and wickedness is rolled away in the world and conversions become prevalent. Our souls are made fat and filled with good things and the glory of God spreads. No prayer no persistence in it, and there is no power in the Christian life. Absolutely none. And there is no power in the church either. It's that simple. I just speak of some experience I've had. I know when I go and I preach to a congregation that prays. It's very evident as a minister. When you go and you open the word to a group that prays, and I've uh, preached in several congregations, and I know where congregants are not praying because there is little power in the preaching itself. There's very little power in the preaching itself. Same minister, same God, but the problem and the difference is the congregation is not prayerful, has not prayed to the Lord for the success of the gospel ministry, has not prayed that their hearts would be readied to hear the word of God, to receive it as good soil and good ground. There is dullness and there is deadness amongst such a people. But in congregations where it's, it's palpable, it's not the man. You go to a congregation where its people are spiritually exercised on their knees in prayer constantly, where they are sensitive to the Lord, and you see that the word of God mightily, mightily works in such a people as that. Do not then put all the burden on the minister who preaches to profit from preaching. If you are not going to pray, you must plead with the Lord in prayer for every spiritual blessing. In the same way, and since we had communion last Lord's Day, I'll say the same thing. There's a great difference in a communion service where the people have prayed and pleaded with the Lord to come down and visit them. You find that there is power and there is a presence from the Lord in that. Whereas a congregation where the people just come as ritual, no power and no presence there. It has to do with prayer. So you pray day by day, daily, persistently, unceasing in urgency and need. Let me just ask, are you praying daily, brethren? Are you praying daily? The Lord knows, the Lord sees, and are you praying in accord to his will? When I say daily prayers, I don't just even mean little perfunctory prayers here and there. I I thought about Aunt Bertha on the way to work, and so I'll pray for her. Or I I, I was in the middle of cleaning my room, and I, I decided to pray for a moment. That's fine. That's okay. 
But it's a strange thing to hear from many Christians that that is the sum total of their prayer life. That is absolutely ridiculous to just say, I pray when I can. I'm very busy, so I'll just pray whenever I have a moment for the Lord. That is not the doctrine of Christian prayer, not the totality of it. You know, the spirituality of the church is so terrible today. It takes convincing Christians that the Lord has given direction for secret prayer as a command. Matthew 6, 6, but thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father, which is in secret and thy father, which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Boys and girls, this is where we get the expression. You may have heard of prayer closet comes out of the scriptures. It's like a getaway place, children, for you and I to be with the Lord one-on-one. It doesn't have to be a physical place, a physical closet. But he's basically saying you must have secret times, times with me, where you, you close the door, so to speak, and it's just you and God in prayer. Just you and God and no one else. And he even says, you do this in secret and I will reward you. I will reward you openly. See, too much of our Christianity is wanting to be seen, isn't it? Okay, I'll show up to church even, right? I'll show up to church because I know that maybe the elders will know if I don't come or maybe my brethren, they'll call me up and say, why aren't you there? Well, brethren, God sees and God is asking, why are you not in the closet? Don't wait for a text from your elder. I can't see you. But the Lord sees and the Lord knows if you're not there. The Lord expects you to be with him in a special way in secret prayer. Total, undivided attention. Undivided. Just you and him, mindful of his petitions, mindful of how you ought to pray with fervency and thought and and meditation, bringing these petitions, thinking on the people in your lives, thinking on the glory of God, purposefully praying in such a way. That's what he wants. That's what you need. So pray as spiritual men and women. Well, our theme does deal with filling heaven with persistent prayer and coming to God. But I would say, and I told you I would come back to this, even in the Lord's Prayer, brethren, is found an inducement in its preface on coming to God. God beckoning you, even in the preface to it. Have you ever taken note of it? There's a preface before the six petitions. Our Father which art in heaven. Why? Why is this the preface the Lord has taught us? It teaches, he teaches you to draw near to God with confidence of his fatherly goodness and our interest therein. That's the language of larger, larger catechism, question 189. That you in Christ know God as your father in heaven, that he is good and you have an interest in him and his goodness if you are in Christ. And that's meant to draw you to him. He has given himself to you as your father if you're in Christ. You are adopted into his household and you have all the rights and privileges of the children of God. So when you ask, when you seek, and when you knock, you're not knocking on the door of a stranger, but you are knocking on the door of your father. That relationship is critical in coming to God in prayer, Christian. You remember A few communions ago, Romans 8.32 was our text. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, 
how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The Father has given his own Son that we might be the children of God. And how will he not, if he has given us this, the greatest gift of all, not give us all things? And so even in the preface there, when we remember the preface, our Father which is in heaven, we remember Christ and how good the Lord was to give us Christ. And so it fills our thoughts with the thought, how will he not give us all these things that we need? Indeed, later in our text, you find this theme in verses 11 through 13. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask for an egg, will he offer him a a scorpion? If ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? (sighs) I don't know if you've had a good father but even the best human father is evil in relation to God. And he says, if you have asked your human fathers for things and know that they will not give you evil things in response, how is it that you do not have a higher thought of me, your heavenly father? And why is there unbelief in your heart? Why is there something in your heart that is keeping you from trusting in the character of God? So what keeps you from prayer? Be honest. Is it a lack of desire? Is it some unbelief that prayer doesn't really matter at the end of the day? Are you afraid that God does not hear? You know these things are not true. In Christ, he promises he does. You need to pray that the Lord would help your unbelief in this. And even in that, will unbelief itself be quenched if you don't pray? Absolutely not. It was a prayer of that poor man, wasn't it? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. We must pray to put away the unbelief that keeps us from prayer. Or maybe today there is some sin that you believe you have committed that can keep you from God. Well, even in view of that, there is a petition here. Forgive us our sins. Even the Lord's prayer itself teaches you that you do not come to God because you are perfect. You come to God as a sinner asking for forgiveness and God receives you for that. Sin cannot keep you from prayer if you repent of it in prayer. Are you afraid God will not give you good things? Maybe you think he will give good things to others but not to me. No, Jesus says every child of God has the very same warrant to come to God for good things. What it is is it's usually your flesh or the devil that keeps you from prayer. It's your sense of even things like this. Pride. God is not to provide. I am to provide. And I will say to that, yes, the Lord uses means, but prayer comes first. Or maybe you have prayed for good things according to even the six petitions here, but you have not had an immediate answer. And so you have stopped praying. You've stopped praying. And unbelief has crept into your heart, hasn't it? Put the unbelief away and do not cease. Bring back to remembrance those things once prayed for that you have stopped praying for, that you have stopped storming the gates of heaven for because you have said maybe it's of no use. Maybe it's the family members not walking with the Lord that you have stopped praying for their repentance and conversion. You've stopped praying thy kingdom come in their lives. 
Or maybe it's that besetting sin that you have stopped praying that the Lord would mortify and you've stopped praying, deliver me from evil, but you have just given yourself over to it, saying, what's the use? No, that's unbelief. And that's a great barrier to your prayers. You have stopped believing the Lord is your heavenly father that cares about these things and wants you to pray in accordance to his will. And what that really is, is that you have grown discouraged with God. You've grown discouraged with God, and that's a terrible, terrible thing. But your Father in heaven, through texts like this, he's drawing you to his throne of grace, saying, why have you forgotten who I am and what I am to you? He says he has sent his Son into the world, even in this text, and his Son, sent by the Father, says, come to our Father in heaven, and you will not leave empty-handed, not a single one of you, and he will give you good things. But you pray according to his will, and you pray with constancy and fervency. And so to aid you in that, the Lord gives further encouragement, which we'll consider in our second heading, which is the persistence of prayer. Persistence. Verses 5 to 8, and I won't go through it exhaustively with time, but our Lord delivers a parable designed to bring you to the throne of grace at any hour, in any time, in any place. And let me briefly summarize it. Uh, There's a man here, we've heard this already, so I'll just summarize it. A man comes to his friend's home at midnight. In other words, it's the dead of night, isn't it? His friend is fast asleep. The children are in bed with him. The door is locked. Now, if you were in the place of this man in the bed, you understand that midnight is a terrible time to be visited by anybody especially if your children are in the bed with you and you don't want to disturb them and you know what a, uh, what a joy it is to try to get your children back to sleep when they're woken, right? So, not a great time. But the man in the parable who visits was driven by a need. He has another friend. And this other friend has visited him from a long way off. And this man, after this long journey, is in need of food. He's in need of sustenance. He is famished. And so this man who visits, he comes to his friend's home in the dead of night asking for food, asking for bread. Now notice this as we talked about the Lord's Prayer. He is not asking for niceties. He's not asking children for a cake, is he? But he's asking for what is needed for sustenance, something necessary for his friend. Now, if you've been following along, children, which petition is this then? It's the fourth petition, isn't it? Give us this day our daily bread. It's interesting, the Lord connects the Lord's prayer itself into the parable, which is something we ought to take note of. Well, his friend initially denied him, saying, I cannot rise, the door is locked, it would wake the children, but the man does not cease in his asking, his seeking, and knocking. And Jesus said that though his friend was in bed, yet because of his friend's importunity, that is persistence, this man would arise and give him as much as he needs. The teaching is plain, persist in prayer until you prevail for the things that are needed, right? Now, before we get into some of the the details here, don't take the wrong lesson away in this parable. Uh, This is not a parable that teaches you a doctrine of God. Uh, In that I mean, God is not like the friend in the bed, right? This is not a parable to teach us what God is like. He's, God is not like a slumbering fan, friend who's annoyed because you come to him at midnight. Jesus knows that through the rest of the Bible, you know God is not like that. He assumes you know who God is. 
We don't derive our doctrine of God from a man sleeping in the bed. But instead, this is, children, what is known as a lesser to greater argument. If something is true of something lesser, how much more true is it of something greater? If something is true of this lesser man, how much truer is it of one greater, of God? If a mere man will answer your persistence then, how much more will God? And that's the lesson here, isn't it? The Lord actually is using an illustration you are to have some sympathy with. Put yourself in the bed. Put yourself in the bed and your friend comes and has a need. Your children are, yes, there. You've locked the door. You've deadbolted it. Your friend knocks. You don't want to get out of your warm bed. You don't want to wake your children who will cry. But if your friend is really this needy, what will you do? You will go, won't you? You will go. I trust that's true of all of you. Yes, you may be a bit frustrated at it, but when you hear of the need, you will go. How much more then would God do that for you when you are in need? Right, that's the lesson, isn't it? If I can be that plain. So with that understanding, for your encouragement, let me give you three inducements to come to God from this lesser to greater argument. And these are brief. The first is this. In the parable, the man who is being asked is a mere friend. He's a mere friend and a sinner at that. Yet the Lord says what? We come to our Father in prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven. How much more likely then is our Father in heaven to be induced to answer than a friend? Right? Jesus purposely doesn't use a Father here. He uses a friend. Second is the nature of the man in bed, and I've alluded to it as well. He is evil. He's a sinner. Verse 13, if ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much shall your heavenly father? If a sinner in this parable is going to give what is needed for this man, how much more our perfect God who is good, who is perfect love, who is gracious, who knows all of our needs, who numbers the hairs on our head and has need even as in Matthew's um, telling of the Lord's prayer before it, that he knows what we need even before we knock. Right? God is unlike the man in the bed because even before the man knocks on the door, God knows what the man needs. He knows what you need. You're not surprising God in prayer. Prayer is an expression of your faith. Now, number three, if a weary friend would do it, how much more would our indefatigable God, you know, this is the physical nature of a mere friend, Flesh and blood, one who wearies, one who tires, one who doesn't want to get up because it's painful. But your heavenly father, not flesh and blood. No, he never grows weary. A weary friend will get up. Yet behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 121 verse 4. That is why if you get up in the middle of the night, two in the morning, and you have strain upon your soul, You don't say, well, God's hours are between nine and five. At two in the morning, God will hear and God will receive because he neither slumbers nor sleeps. At every point, in every point of your life, in the worst times, in the best times, at the dead of night or at noonday, the Lord is just as ready to receive you. And that's an inducement to come. How much more than this man will our father answer us? One last thing about the parable before we have to move on. 
Note something of the kind of prayer that is being offered. And I wonder if you've noticed this. In this parable, the man who knocks was an intercessor. He didn't even ask for himself. He's asking for a friend who's come on a long journey. So Jesus intends for you to also pray for others. This is something that is necessary for us. We are to persist even in our prayers for others. And intercessory prayers, as you know from the scripture, are greatly answered by God. James 5.16, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. This is an illustration here in the parable of James 5.16. Take it up and believe it. Well, with time slipping by, let's consider our final heading then, the promise of prayer. Well, not only does Christ give us a pattern for prayer, he gives us promises. Now, I want to, we're going to talk about the promise of the Holy Ghost, but I want you to actually think for a moment and see that every petition in the Lord's Prayer is actually connected to a promise. Every single one, all six. The promises of God form the basis of these petitions. And so what we will find is if we know the promises of God, we are to pray them. Consider these six petitions. Petition number one, hallowed be thy name. What's the promise? Think of Psalm 46, verse 10. I will be exalted among the nations. Petition number two, thy kingdom come, Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Promise. Petition three, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Micah 4, 2. And many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Petition number four. Give us this day our daily bread. Psalm thirty-seven twenty-five. I have been young and now am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. Petition number five. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Petition number six, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. First Corinthians 10, 13. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. Every petition is built on a promise from the scripture. And I could have used many more texts than this. This is just to give you an example. But every petition is connected to what God has promised. And so what do you learn about the connection between prayer and promise other than we have, to, um, we have to know the promises of God so that we may pray with understanding? But I would also say never assume you will receive the promise without prayer. Never assume you will receive what is promised, that's presumption by the way, without praying for it. The Lord teaches you to pray for what he promises. Prayer is the prescription the Lord gives us to receive what he promises. We would be terribly remiss to hold on to promises and yet never once bring them into the secret place. So do that. Pray for what he has promised. And that is how you will better persist in prayer, beloved. You will better wrestle with God as Jacob and Habakkuk and Elijah if you bring to God his own precious promises. Do you think when you bring a promise to him, he will send you away with a scorpion or a rock? No. That's his promise too. 
In fact, perhaps the greatest promise of all is found here in the text, verse 13. How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? The Holy Spirit, children, as you know, is God himself. This is the greatest gift. This is the greatest gift, to to go to God, to ask for God. What greater gift can be conceived of? It is he that we need in this present age. We need the dwelling, indwelling of the Holy Spirit and power in our lives, don't we? We are dependent, or we ought to be on him, for every spiritual blessing. We find, as you would find in the scripture, and I'll just give you a shotgun approach here, you will find joy in the Holy Ghost. You will find peace in the Holy Ghost. You will find comfort in the Holy Ghost. He is our comforter. Uh, You will find holiness through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who uh, subdues our flesh. You will find illumination and light for the word of God as a light to our path. You will find our union and communion with uh, the, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Holy Spirit's ministry connecting us to the Savior. And in prayer, not only is he given to us, but he also in prayer takes us to the Father in prayer, testifying that we can come to God saying what? Abba, Father, so that we say Abba, Father. And the Holy Spirit, he applies to us all the benefits of salvation procured by Christ. If there's anything that you need in Christ, it's the Holy Spirit who gives. Uh, in a way, this is Trinitarian theology, right? He, in a way, perfects the works of the Trinity, right? All the works of the, the Godhead are indivisible, but the Trinity, in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, he perfects the work of the, whole, of the Trinity. So all the works of God are perfected by him. And so every spiritual blessing is yours and yours for the asking. But that God would be given to you is the greatest of all blessings. Here you find God is the giver and God is the gift. Now that's an astonishing thought that would remove from our heart a desire for Ferraris and mansions, wouldn't it? To think of this as the gift I may receive in prayer. God himself. Abraham's great reward was God himself, wasn't it? That God is mine for the asking. Well, Our Lord then gives you, and we'll end with these three thoughts, gives you a memorable turn of phrase to induce you to ask him. Verse 10, for everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Ask, seek, knock. Let's break that down into its constituent phrases. First is ask, and it shall be given you. We are to go to the Lord in faith that we will receive if we ask. We're not to ask in doubting as the double-minded. But you might say, Pastor, I have asked, I have not received, I have gone away empty. But I would have you consider, have you really? Have you really gone away empty? Have you gone away empty when you have asked? Now, perhaps you didn't get exactly what it is you thought you, you wanted in that act of prayer, but have you gone away empty? Do you remember the Apostle Paul, how he pleaded thrice, for that thorn to be taken from him. You'll find that in 2 Corinthians 12, and I trust you know it well. And you say, well, here, here's the apostle himself. He went away without having his request answered. The thorn in the flesh was not removed. But did he truly go away empty? No. What did the Lord say to him? My grace is sufficient 
for thee. He did not go away empty. He received the grace of God. He asked, and maybe it wasn't what he had intended to receive, but he did not go away empty at all. He received grace through the Holy Spirit who was given to him. And so don't think because maybe the answer is not yet, or maybe even the answer is no, that by asking you have not received. You will receive. You will receive what is most needed for you. You will receive what is better for you when you go to the Lord. And you must trust in that. Second, seek and you shall find now, have you ever, children, lost something valuable? There's some parables that deal with that. Do you know the panic of looking here and there and everywhere for it? Well, this is the kind of urgency that the Lord wants us to have when we seek him in prayer. I need these things. I want these things. I desire these things. I want to have these things. Even on these things that consider the glory of God, just as our godly father, John Knox said, give me Scotland ere I die. We go with the sense of seeking for things that we need. And we seek an audience with him as the widow who went to the wicked judge and how she gave that wicked judge no rest. You will find him in prayer if you seek him and he will be there to receive you. And on that you have, thirdly, knock and it shall be opened unto you. You know, we knock as one seeking admission that the door would be open to us as it was in the parable. We go with boldness to the throne of grace, knowing it shall be open to us. If the friend will open the door, how much more our father, who delights in us. You think of the parable of the prodigal son. He's waiting and he's watching. He wants you to come to the door. He wants you to come to his door. Matthew 6 speaks that way. He knows what you need before you come. We make our presence then known to the Lord reverently, but not timidly as a mouse scampering in fear before the throne of grace. We come boldly, we knock with reverence, but with a warrant too. I have a warrant to come as I am in Christ. You are my father in heaven and you will answer the door. Just as children, little children knock on the door of their parents in the middle of the night in night terrors and the parents don't yell at them, go away, what are you doing here? They say, come here. Let me comfort you. Let me console you. We knock saying because of the blood of Christ, I have a warrant to be here. It's holy confidence. You know, undoubtedly alluding to what we have heard throughout this text, Samuel Rutherford wrote to a woman named Marion McNaught, it were good that we should knock and rap at our Lord's door. We may not tire to knock oftener than twice or thrice. He knoweth the knock of his friends. He knows who's knocking. Now, if I may be permitted to make a slight modification to such an esteemed minister as Rutherford, let me just maybe put it this way. He not knows the knock of his children, not just his friends. He knows you're knocking, Christian. He loves it. He delights in it. He wants it. In fact, he would probably be expressing to you, why aren't you knocking more often? Why aren't you visiting more often with me? Why is it I seldom hear you knock? when I want you to knock all the time. When he hears you're knocking on heaven's door and his heart is something like this, when he perceives you now, here is faith in me, here is trust in me, here is hope in me, here is dependence upon me, here is love for me as, as this one's father. The Lord delights in these things. He knoweth the knock of his children. It pleases him. And so in view of all these things, brethren, persist in prayer. 
and be found in prayer. As you know, incense is linked to the, uh, it's just a picture of the spiritual reality of prayer in the Bible. Let me just ask how much incense is there arising out of your home into heaven? How much is there that the Lord receives? How busy, if you don't mind me saying that, is the Lord in dispatching your prayers? Is heaven busy with your prayers? You know, the kingdom is so weak because we do not pray. Listen to Isaiah 62, 6. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence and give him no rest till he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. The, the Lord says, don't give me any rest in prayer. We know this is a manner of speaking, of course, but you understand the illustration. Make me busy with your prayers until I make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Look at that language. Give God no rest till the kingdom flourishes. So never forget from this day forth, you never leave the throne of grace empty when you go. He will give you the Holy Spirit. You will leave with grace sufficient for thee. It is a means of grace. Never think, never imagine you leave empty. He knows your knock, children of God. So knock and he will answer you. Amen. May the Lord bless our meditation on his word. Let's arise for prayer if able. <clears throat> o thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. Iniquities prevail against me, as for our transgressions thou shalt purge them away. We do pray, O Lord, that thou that hearest prayer would have much to hear from us. Help us to be constant in the prayer closet. Help us to lift up the glory of God in our petitions and to have such a dependence on the Lord that we would plead with the Lord day by day for those things we need. Give us, O Lord, the Holy Spirit. Increase our faith, O Lord. Increase our faith and give us the Spirit to do it. Give us grace sufficient for all of our trials and our tribulation to overshadow all of our sins that so easily ensnare us. Keep us from temptation, O Lord. But most of all, give into our hearts a consuming desire for the glory of God. For we pray these things in accord with the will of God, and we have confidence then that thou hearest us as thy children. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.